there's all sorts of ways that quality can be lost as soon as a plant is harvested. And that's gonna show up in the end product. A company either is minimizing those or not paying attention. It's not just what's quality control measured in a lab, but it's also the quality of the soil and how the soils are being cared for. It's the quality of the ecosystem. If it's a wild plant, it's the quality of the livelihoods of the workers. If people are paid better and they're given a contract, they'll do a better job. So all those factors are gonna go into the different quality in those finished products. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Raven Hill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. If you have ever wondered where your herbal products come from and the authenticity of manufacturer claims, this episode is for you. Anne Armbrecht is author of The Business of Botanicals, in which she explores how our store-bought herbal medicines come to being. Through rigorous research and travel, Anne traces the often lengthy and meandering supply chain of herbal products that links earth to store shelf. During this discussion, we explore her findings, including the ethics of business practice, the stories manufacturers often weave through their high-profile marketing teams, and the power that consumers wield via buying choices. We also discuss lessons and learned from writing her two previous books and the journeys this newest one took her on. Anne, who earned a PhD in anthropology from Harvard, is passionate about exploring the relationships between humans and the earth. In addition to writing, she presents her ideas as a documentary film producer and as the director of the Sustainable Herbs program offered under the American Botanical Council. Her fastidious work ultimately benefits everyone who is touched by herbal medicine, growers, producers, practitioners, patients, and the planet. The more broadly her work is known, the more each of us along the supply chain will be held accountable, including those at the endpoint, consumers. We can collectively demand better and raise industry standards with our choices. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Anne Armbrecht. Anne, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Glad to have you here. I want to first acknowledge one of my previous guests, Michael Eisted, who actually tipped me off to you and your work. And that is the reason why I reached out to you. So thank you for agreeing to be on the show. Great. Yep. Thank you. I think maybe to begin, why don't we do a little trade? I want to hear about your West Virginia roots and I'll tell you about my West Virginia roots. <laughs> you tell me first. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up in a tiny little town by the name of Short Gap, which probably had a population of a few hundred. And I think we had one store, a little grocery store, and one two-truck fire department. And that was about it. I don't actually remember much about it. I only lived there through my early years and didn't actually spend a whole lot of time there. We also had a, another home in Maryland where I eventually moved to permanently. And so most of the time was spent in Maryland, but my mom was a teacher in West Virginia, so that's where I started my school days. But uh, I ended up, after nearly 20 years, I ended up going back to West Virginia, and I studied at West Virginia University. That's where I did my, my degree. So 
uh, been there, left, came back, had some great, had some great time there, especially during university. And uh-huh. it was only much later, probably about 10 years ago, when I went back to visit my parents in Maryland, driving through West Virginia, that I realized how incredibly beautiful it is and how much I missed out on by actually not spending much time there. Uh, well, first, <clears throat> it's not often you meet people from West Virginia, so. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it's a stunningly beautiful state. I'm from Charleston, okay. the capital, um, and grew up there. My parents are still there. My brother's back there. But I left for college and, and actually after college, when I wanted to go overseas and was looking on a map and trying to figure out and picked Nepal and um, a good family friend said to my mother, tell her she doesn't have to go to Nepal. She can just go up in the hollows of Appalachia and she'll be just as far away. And uh, yeah, it's interesting pretty... last, last year with the sustainable herbs program, we did go to Appalachia to do some filming around wild harvesting and efforts to kind of help support wild crafting. And I felt like, oh, this is why I've been doing this work to finally get back to West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is such a beautiful place for that. And I knew really nothing about plants when I lived there, despite the fact that my grandfather was a farmer and also a botanist. I had zero interest actually growing up. And so I spent very little time in the Appalachian Mountains other than my, my home in Maryland was in the Appalachians, but I uh, spent very little time exploring nature for nature. It was mostly exploring nature for running or as mountain biking trails or things of, of that type, but never just to actually be with the plants. And I've long since thought about going back and I would love to hike the Appalachian Trail, but we'll see if that ever happens. There are amazing mountain bike trails there. <laughs> What impact did that sort of ecosystem have on you and the ultimate direction of your your passions and your professional life? That's a good question. Um, and when I was living later, when I went back to Nepal for my research for my doctorate and I was living in a village in the east in the mountains and one day the leaves kind of blew off the trees and I realized it reminded me of a Appalachian woodland and it made me so homesick and and so I think it's that the forest um because I wasn't a big plant person my mother was the big plant person and I could never remember the names of the plants and and I also you know would go hiking but it was more to go running on the trail to the top of the mountain rather than sitting and being present with the splendor of nature but I I think that the wildness of the mountains, but also, you know, I grew up in a middle-class family, went to a good school, but there's such economic contrast in West Virginia and there's so much poverty and so much inequity. And, and so it's interesting. The, so I think that that has shaped my path and awareness of economics difference But also I think there was, you know, it's coal mining country and that wasn't a world I knew, you know, with my church group, we would go help with um, in coal mining towns and we'd see coal mine, that whole world, but it wasn't a world I could enter. And I was very aware of that difference. And so I think 
that drew me also to anthropology to kind of try and close that difference, that cultural, economic, social difference. And how did you come about being interested in anthropology? I think I've always been interested in different different ways of knowing. When I was in college, a professor quoted Lionel Trilling and said, every culture is a set of blinders unless we have the keys to unlock it. So I've always been curious about how we see the world in particular ways that are not truth, that are not the way things are. And so how to step outside of that. And for me, stepping outside of that has been asking questions of other people um, and in any interaction, but then also in a cultural interaction. Also in college, and I worked on an Indian reservation, Native American at a job course center for Native Americans from the West and studied in the Native American studies program in college. And so always they've been questions I've been asking, but how I chose to go to anthropology was after college, I was working with Tibetan refugee communities in Nepal and, and was teaching English. They wanted someone to write a book about the history of their resettlement in Nepal. And so I was like, I'll do it. I want to write a book. And so I started interviewing people and wrote this book, but I had no idea what I was doing. And so that made me curious about how I would have gone about it if I had training. So that led me to graduate school in anthropology. Hmm. What was the title of the book? Or what is the title? Um, That was Settlements of Hope. It's an account of Tibetan refugees in Nepal. And who was the audience for that? What was the I don't think I thought that. Cultural Survival published it. Okay. Um, So it was really, I mean, there is an avid following of people interested in Tibet and Tibetan refugees and the situation there. I'm not sure how wide of a readership it got. What did you learn from that experience and did it in any way help to shape your future writings? I think it helped me trust the questions that I've been asking and to follow my curiosity, both as in doing the research for that, because I didn't know what I was doing. And so I just had to trust myself and trust myself to reach out to people and ask the questions, but also to trust a path. You know, I went to Nepal because I I had turned down a Peace Corps assignment in West Africa and I wanted to go somewhere that was beautiful. So I picked Nepal, but I had no idea really where that was gonna go. And in fact, it's led me on this path that's not a linear path at all, but it's a path that works, so. So that experience in Nepal helped shape the direction that you would travel for the rest of your life till now. And also thinking outside the box, like following my curiosity rather than some idea of what something should be or look like or what the outcome would be. Mm -hmm. And when did an interest in plants come into your life? You mentioned your mother knew a lot about them. Was she an herbalist or herbalist of any sort or just interested in them? Just loves plants, loves the forest, loves West Virginia. Yeah. Um, no, my parents are big conservationists, but not herbalists. Okay. So as I was saying, I went back to Nepal for graduate work and that work was around a conservation project that was being created. I was interested in what villagers thought about 
international conservation. But really I was, I thought indigenous people had the answer to all of the problems in the world. <clears throat> and so I went with a whole lot of romantic ideas about and simplistic ideas about indigenous people as a category and that they have the answers that we somehow lack. And of course I learned it was much more complex and easier to romanticize rural farming life from afar than it is to live it. But I also learned and came to really appreciate the relationship with that most everyone in the village, men and women, older men, younger children had with the environment as something more than a collection of resources for our use. Um, you know, that it was something living and alive. There were, they made offerings to it. You know, all the things that people romanticize about indigenous people, that was truth, tr a truth, even as it was also the resource to exploit that they depended on to live. It could be both of those things, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Oh, but you asked about the plants. Do you want me to? Sure, go on. Yeah. So then I came back to the US and I was finishing my dissertation at Harvard, which is a very intellectual, heady, not very heart-centered place. And I felt incredibly alienated and lost. And I went to an herb conference. And it was through that, um, it was a women, Northeastern New England Women's Herb Conference with Rosemary Gladstar. And through that, that really made me curious about plants, but it was because plants were this, in herbal medicine, were part of this bigger framework about a relationship with the earth as something sacred and alive and all of those things. So the plants were a path to this larger. Mm -hmm. So at that time you were pursuing your PhD in anthropology and that's yeah. when your, your world kind of opened up to the magic of plants. Yes. And did you, did that affect the course of your doctoral studies or did you continue on with those as, as per the plan and, and then do some more work with plants? So I finished my doctorate, you know, in the, the way one does, you know, but, but as I finished, you know, I always was more interested in writing than I was in being an anthropologist or a scholar or an academic. And so I always planned to revise my dissertation into a book. And so as part of that revision, herbs and botanical medicine became part of that story because at that time, when I was writing that, I was in doing the apprentice program with Rosemary. And so I wove that in. To, the, to that book. Okay. Is that book your most recent book? No, so that book is Thin Places, A Pilgrimage Home, and it's it's much more personal than the current book. Um, it's around <clears throat> talking about the village's relationship to the earth, but also exploring my relationship with the people around me. And, and I'm asking, how we can, and the unraveling of my marriage and just trying to draw parallels about how we treat the earth and how we treat each other. Were you exploring others' potential interpretations of those questions or was it strictly your own viewpoint? So the whole book was about this village where I was working and their relationship to the land and land tenure and shamanic journeys. And then back in the United States, 
my ex-husband and I were visiting conservation projects in communities around the country to see how protecting the land or protecting something in their community led to a larger transformation around community or certain Native American tribes that were getting access to land again. So in an external way, I was looking at the relationship with people's land. I was not talking to other people about their marriage or things like that. That was just my personal experience. Mm -hmm. And then what about the most recent book? I know that was a big project for you and it's, I haven't, I haven't read it yet, but it looks amazing. You mind talking a bit about that? Um, sure. So, so the question I was asking in Thin Places was, is it possible to find the sacred in a far off place? And then what happens when we come home and how do you find that sense of sacred at home? And that theme really, you know, that's what drew me to herbal medicine also the way working with plants, it's with something alive. It's something like other with a capital O. It's not just something we control. So the, so I wanted to know, can that relationship with something that's alive, like, like a sense of spirit of the plant, can that be sustained or how can you find that in a global supply chain? So herbalists talk a lot. So I studied herbal medicine and then my current husband and I, he's a filmmaker. We made a documentary film, Newman, that was really celebrating the healing power of plants. And as we made that film, we talked to a number of herb companies. And I realized that to, because we realized, you know, they have to look also at the reality of where plants are sourced and things like that. It's not just how herb students imagine that relationship. If we're using plants that are traded on a global supply chain, what's intention look like there? And so that same question that I was asking in Thin Places really is what I'm asking in this current book, The Business of Botanicals, but on a more uh, on another dimension, the book is about making visible the people and places behind finished products. So it's really like we just see an object on a, a tincture bottle or a capsule bottle on a grocery store shelf. And that's what we see. And when we see that, that it makes us ask certain questions like, what are the herbs in there and how will they affect my health? But if you think of putting that tincture bottle against a picture with a field or a forest, and the collectors and the machines, you know, placed in the context where it's from. To me, I ask different questions. I then want to know about the health of the ecosystem. It like connects me. It's a pathway that connects me to a bigger whole, not just a product that I'm taking. So that's what I'm exploring in this book. Both what those stories are and whether those knowing those stories makes a difference and makes us better consumers or buyers of those medicines. Mm. Reminds me of a recent interview I did with Kenneth Cohen, who's a world-renowned Qigong expert and Taoist scholar. And he he walked me through the tasting of a cup of oolong tea. And he was able to basically go to the mountains of Taiwan and through smell and taste, pick up the the hints and the tones of other things that were grown that were growing near that tea plantation and it was really quite it was it was meditative 
to listen to him go through this two or three minute description of the environment based on what he was picking up from that cup of tea. And it just reminds me very much of this backstory that you're talking about that we rarely ever take the time to think about. As you said, we want to know what's in it and how it's going to help us. And maybe is it the cheapest or should I upgrade to a slightly more expensive one? But how often do we actually think about where did it come from? How did it, how did all the products come together into this, this finished item? That must've been a fascinating journey for you. And it was the hardest thing I think I've ever done, (laughs) but I wanted to say one, I mean, that's a lovely story about the tea. And so I am, I don't love shopping and it always makes me anxious, but I, the story once after, so to back up for a second. So I started this project and I went to Eastern Europe and I visited some Fairwild certified projects and Fairwild is a certification to help have source wild plants responsibly from the wild and also help make sure the collectors are getting a fair deal. One of this company was from Poland and I traveled around with the collector. And then I came back a few weeks later and I was in the supplement aisle, you know, buying tea or just walking down the tea aisle. And I saw a traditional medicinals gypsy cold care tea. And, and it said, had the little fair wild logo. And I, you know, I never really read the packaging because I'm always a little suspect. I think it's just marketing to make me buy something. But this time I thought, oh, I'll just read what they say. And it described the, the forest where I had just been in Poland. And it described the collectors who were gathering the, I think it was the nettles or the, I, I can't remember the specific ingredient. And I realized that was probably the collector that I had just visited, who I'd really? met whose house I'd seen. And I, and it was, you know, it's not often in a global supply chain, you actually can put a face and an exchange on that. And I felt something inside of me relax. You know, often I'm like on defensive in the grocery store because of all the unseen ways we're impacting the world, right? That we can't control. But here, like there was this one little way that I could relax. Because I knew that guy, he was being taken care of and he was taking care of the plants. He loved those plants and he loved that meadow. And so it just made me wonder, isn't that part of healing too, knowing these stories? Yeah, it certainly is. One of my friends and a previous guest, Stacy Taves, he's the founder of a company called Level Ground Trading. And they seek out partnerships around the world and they create direct buying relationships with the actual growers and every package has a picture of the grower of that particular food item whether it's coffee or dried fruit or nuts or oils and so they they import those into canada but there's that direct link back to the community and they support various projects in those communities uh, to help help those communities continue to produce and and be sustainable And it's an interesting challenge because it can be easily manipulated, right? I mean, so as part of this book project, The Business of Botanicals, and now the work I do, the Sustainable Herbs Program, it's been following herbs through the supply chain, telling the story, you know, first educating about what's involved, and second, talking about key issues around like 
wild harvesting and regenerative farming and things like that. But many, one of the surprising things, most surprising perhaps in a world of many surprising things is how few end companies really connect to the source. That it, that story that you gave that's rare and it's rare for different reasons, but one is logistical because it's really hard to, to source. But uh, companies, good companies will have, that I visited would have 10, 15 people in marketing and one person in sourcing. And so that, so that's what feeds into my skept, my concern about there's a lot of greenwashing out there and right. claims about the care that's being brought. And maybe it is, but it's, it can always be, it can be hard to know. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you learn in the writing of this? You must have uncovered and discovered so much. So I think when I started, I thought the biggest factor was scale. I'm from rural Vermont, small scale, local. I have this inherent bias toward. And while I still have that, I still believe that. I also don't know that that's the key indication in good or bad quality. Um, but to so so scale is not the thing that necessarily meant something was bad though that's what I thought at the beginning. So then I had to learn what to look for. It, it, it's like I had to learn how to see. So you had some preconceived notions that the larger the scale, the lesser the quality. Yeah. Because and I, I think thought- that's, I think ahead. that's pretty common too. I, I, I think I know I'm guilty of that as well. And we'd like to sum, support small and local, but once small and local becomes- big and global, it's a different story. And another thing was mechanization. You know, I originally also thought mechanization is a bad thing. I don't know that some, so, so what I'm saying is as I did this work, I, I learned, I learned what are some of the key things that really to look for in determining high, a high quality product, because there's a lot of really bad quality stuff. And I don't know that I learned that. I think I maybe expected that. Maybe some of it was worse than I thought. And people in the botanical and dietary supplement industry don't like to talk about that a lot. And so for me at the outset, I had to decide, okay, I, I was always clear I didn't want to write this investigative journalist thing, turning up dirt about the industry, because that kind of feeds into this black and white. It's all good or it's all bad. And what I found is that there are some really good companies that have really high quality guide, you know, high quality standards, a real commitment to issues that are important. And they're competing on the shelves with a whole bunch of companies that are just price buying and they're price buying herbs on, on the open market. And there's no comparison in that product. And yet, for consumers, what we often see is just a different pricing. And so some of the things within that that I think distinguish that quality from the bad quality, one is transparency. You want companies that can follow their goods all the way to the source. They might not, might not be controlling them all the way, but there's a paper trail. Um, another thing is certification. So certifications are a way to do that. You know, Certifications aren't perfect, but I think I got a lot more respect 
for like organic certification, fair for life, fair wild, what, what they are offering is one, that paper trail, they're, they're showing, and that paper trail really shows that attention, somebody's paying attention all the way down to the source. It might not be one person, it can be a lot of different people, but there has to be that level of attention and care. And so those are the things I think are more important than scale. You know, it's harder to bring that attention and care to high, to, to bigger scale things. But I also know when I harvest my own plants, I'm not always that careful. So, but that's just me that's suffering from that. But I, I know that small scale isn't always more careful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually just interviewed Mike Malterra, who has a botanical based skincare and sunscreen company called Stream to See. And they set out to be the world's safest and best sunscreen provider. And he was telling a story about they were getting independent testing done and they were certain they were going to meet all the criteria and they failed it. And they couldn't figure out why, but they had these toxins in their products that should not have been there. And they ended up following the trail and they found that there was this blue plastic tub of one of their key ingredients somewhere on the other side of the world. And the toxins from that blue plastic tub were leaching into the contents of that tub, which then got transferred into their products. So as you said, it's crucial to have that relationship with your product from every stage throughout, because that's really the only way you can truly know what that product is and, and what's gone into it or hasn't gone into it. And also then to troubleshoot. So then they could trace that back and see. Someone told me a story of an Ayurvedic company and they were getting high levels of heavy metals and they couldn't figure out why on their sesame oil, I think, and they checked and they checked and everything was seemed okay. But then they went back to maybe the field where it was being ground in you know, a small processing center. And there was some drip, I think, on the machinery of something that just needed to be tweaked. And so also what that does is, is, is being able to trace it and to see where the problem is, is if you don't know, then suddenly you just go to a different supplier, right? But yeah. if you, this finished product company, then they could go back and say, oh, let's troubleshoot, let's fix this. You're not gonna lose our business because that business plays a really crucial role, you know, the, to be able to sell to a US brand, that's a big deal but it requires that relationship and a real commitment to troubleshooting and improving and seeing when problems come up, how can we work them out so that you all get what you need, which is a livelihood, and we get what we need, which is a product which meets our specifications. Mm -hmm. And in the business of botanicals, are you primarily, I don't want to use the word investigating, but researching companies that exist and their process and assembly and their their chain of products or are you also giving advice or steps on how to start up a botanical or a herbal based business or is it something else maybe i missed it altogether with those options it's more the former than the latter so I started out thinking, okay, I'm going to tell the story of where herbs come from. And in my book proposal, it 
was divided into chapters like process, you know, wild harvesting, cultivating, processing, etc. And I wrote several drafts that way, and it, it didn't, it didn't tell an interesting story. But what I found out was that, well, be, by following herbs through the supply chain and describing each step, there's a lot that's wrong, and there's a lot that's not working, and it doesn't make an interesting book to read about that, and it doesn't really give any any reason to hope, right, or see a path forward. So, so I tons of notes and of visits that I didn't include in the book. And what I really tried to do was focus on encounters between individuals that I felt like were making a difference. And that was really where that attention and care was being brought. And so it's both talking about what I see as the positive examples in the botanical industry and also saying, this is what I think is necessary if you're going to start up and do this. So mm-hmm. it's it's a how-to in a cultural sense, maybe not a ABC do this kind of sense. And are you sharing stories of individuals along the yeah. way? Yeah, okay. it's all very, it's about my encounters and questions and conversations and one of yeah. One of your testimonials on your website likens it to... A, a deeper dive beyond braiding sweetgrass. If you like braiding sweetgrass, you'll love where this takes you. So to me, braiding sweetgrass is such a beautiful read. It's so eloquent. And Robin Wall Kimmerer just, I can't even speak highly, I can't speak highly enough of her ability to write. So to have that comparison made about your book to that, well, it tells me that it's probably beautifully written and that you're sharing those stories. You're really taking it. I would presume you're bringing your anthropological background into it and you're really bringing the stories of the humans alive and their relation to plants. Yeah, I was very gratified by Angela's quotation. That was very nice. So, you know, the, um, Robin Kimmerer has the concept of honorable harvest, which is, you know, what, I learned as an herb student with Rosemary and others, you know, that what I was saying before, that there's a relationship we have with plants. It's not just about extraction. We don't necessarily codify it in the way that she has or that Native American communities have, but we all have relationships that we don't, that aren't just about extracting everything we can. That can be with people or it can be a place, you know, a garden, a bit of the forest that we love. And so we care for it. And so what I was really trying, what the book really does is tries to find those places. I think of them like eddies of love, maybe, in a global supply chain. Because often, right, we, we turn to herbal products because they're, the idea is they're safer, they're better for the earth. There's also something about connecting with nature maybe. And so versus a pharmaceutical, which is not really about a connection. So I wanted to know, is it possible to have connection in the market economy that in many ways is a source of our disconnection that makes us need to be connected? And so I found those in those like pools of can relationships where people did really care for each other and it's not a whole company it's individual one-on-one encounters um and you mentioned earlier that 
or a consumer looking at a shelf, seeing two products in the same category, depending on the attention that is put into either the intention and attention to either of those products, they're not even comparable. What did you mean by that? Uh, so one that's, say, from a traceable supply network and one that's not? Yes. So uh, an example, when I was in South India visiting a trader, so he was an Indian trader who he would buy from growers of periwinkle and some other plants, and then he in turn would sell to either another consolidator or a company that would do some processing and sell them to another. So there's a lot of hands, you know, some herbs that come from say South India where the Himalayas would pass through 15 hands before you get to the end product. And so in this particular warehouse that he took us to, there are just piles of really dry, dusty looking, worn out, I don't know what they were, stems it looked like or something. and we asked who the buyers were and if this is what he would sell and to them. And he said he had some higher quality stuff in another warehouse. And if the customer asked, if the buyer asked, he would sell them that. But if they didn't ask, he would sell them this. And so for a buyer, so, so a plant that's moving through the open market, it's just by and large driven by price. Whereas if a company, that other product, often it's a certified supply chain, or if it's a company with really high in standards and ways of checking, then that can be the case too. It doesn't have to necessarily be certified, but then there's gonna be so much more attention and that attention is gonna translate into the herbs being harvested at the right time when they're, you know, when the, the ingredients are gonna be most potent. Um, that it dried in the correct way in sacks so that the humidity isn't like, you know, evaporating the essential oils or things like that. They're going to be processed in the right way. So there's steps around how to do that. There's all sorts of ways that quality can be lost as soon as a plant is harvested. And that's going to show up in the end product. A company either is minimizing those or not paying attention. So I think that's what I meant. But I also... But I also, in this book and in the Sustainable Herbs Program, sort of following on the work of like Joseph Brinkman at Traditional Medicinals, really want to expand the idea of quality, that it's not just what's quality control measured in a lab, but it's also the quality of the soil and how the soils are being cared for and whether they can continue to be healthy. It's the quality of the ecosystem if it's a wild plant. Um, it's also in cultivated plants, if it's just grown in a big monocrop or in a diverse field, it's the quality of the livelihoods of the workers. Because if, if the collectors are paid pennies for their labor, one, there's like the moral thing of, you know, that I'm getting a product that's for my health paid for by, you know, where the work's done by people who aren't healthy. But it's also, if people are paid better and they're given a contract, they'll do a better job because they'll, they'll, and, and so, so all those factors are going to go into the different quality in those company, in those finished products. So two products on the shelf that both even have the same name, call it a cold and flu remedy. Both of them might even be organic, but as I'm hearing from you, there's so much more to that. 
even with the exact same ingredients, the medicinal value might be vastly different depending on how the plants are grown, how they're harvested, how they're stored, how they're transported, etc. Uh, yes, although I would say organic is a really good place to start. I mean, if everybody just bought organic herbs, that would put so much pressure on the market that that would have an impact. You know, it would go back down to the field and, you know, things like pesticide drift in Eastern Europe right now means that wild collectors collecting in areas where there's no pesticides around, they're, what they harvest can't pass the pesticide levels because of pesticide drift. But it also connects with the idea of ecological medicine that we can't be well until the planet is well. And I think that what surprised me about herbal medicine is I feel like that tenant should be front and center, that this product is only as healthy as every, you know, concentric circles all the way out, the, the e ultimate ecosystem. But that that isn't the case. It's pretty much separate. And if you go to these big trade shows, Expo West, Supply Side West, there's not a lot of attention to the health of the ecosystem there. There are companies who are really trying to do that, but that's not the main conversation. I really resonated with what you said earlier that how can you feel good taking a product for your health knowing that it is at the expense of somebody else's health along that supply chain line. What companies, if you can speak of them, what companies did you find are really doing a great job? Are there any examples that you want to share? So it's interesting. Everybody always wants me to recommend companies, what company to buy. And, and I mentioned companies in the book and that can be a plug to go buy the book and you see what companies I mentioned. But I, um, I think the bigger thing I'm exploring in the book is really, is it possible to shift from us being consumers, looking for the right company and, and really to more of a partnership model? So, so what Joseph Brinkman did in his work at Traditional Medicinals was at the time they had no connection with the source of their, the producer groups that were actually harvesting or growing the plants. And so they insisted on developing those relationships and forming a partnership and, and saying, what are your challenges? How can we help you meet those challenges so that you can meet our quality control? guidelines, what I was talking about before. And I wonder, what if we turn that and think about the relationship between a brand, the finished product company, and us as consumers? You know, right now we kind of, like I stand in the grocery store shelf and I'm looking and seeing, oh, this product, what's this going to do for me? And I read their marketing and I trust them or I don't. And companies are constantly, as I said, having to compete on the shelf with other companies who don't necessarily, aren't doing everything they're doing, but the price is lower. And so there's this constant pressure on price. What if we see the money we spend buying a product is like a donation to local public radio that's really letting that radio stay alive and continue to do the work that they're doing. And so in buying traditional medicinals tea, I'm helping, I'm both getting a good product and I'm helping them continue to do the work they're doing in sourcing responsibly from these communities. Or, and, and that if they share with me some of the challenges they're facing, I'm not gonna go running for another tea company. I'm gonna, that it requires 
me trusting them and them being worthy of their that trust and do you see what i'm saying it, it's like a like so that there's a partnership because now they're all competing with each other and so there people won't share companies won't share the challenges because they're afraid consumers aren't committed enough to understanding what those challenges mean and so we think someone else has the answers but nobody else has the answers the other people just aren't telling the truth is my what i think <laughs> yeah and I don't know much about Celestial Seasonings Tea Company, but I did live in Boulder for a while, and I know that the company doesn't have a great reputation for the quality of its products. And frequently they're tested, and they have a lot of contaminants and pesticides, even the ones that say they're organic. And yet it's a company that has a massive marketing budget, and so they're able to sell this story of back to nature and we're doing everything right and we have all the right ingredients and a lot of them are even organic but i don't buy it so then it's i mean everybody i've spoken with who works at a brand said if consumers ask questions that they listen and so you know if right now i feel like botanical herb companies get away with a lot because consumers aren't super educated about what to look for and how to interpret the what's written on the packaging. Um, and so part of that's part of the work I'm trying to do now, both in the book, Business of Botanicals and the Sustainable Herbs Program is really educate. These are the issues. These are the things to be asking about so that there can be more transparency. So we can call Celestial Seasoning or whomever I mean, a while ago when I was doing research on, we were getting ready to go down to Appalachia to, to document um, wild harvesting of black cohosh. And so I, I found like 15 companies that sold black cohosh on Amazon and I emailed them all and I said, oh, could you just tell me where your black cohosh is from? And 97% of black cohosh is wild harvested. I think three quarters of the companies I wrote said they, it was from cultivated sources. And, and so I wrote back and I was like, oh, I thought it was mostly wild harvested. Could you tell me more about where you cultivate it? And some would answer once more, but then most, it just, the questioning ran out. Um, mm -hmm. And that's probably because it's somebody in marketing who just doesn't know. Um, not necessarily that they're trying to, be, trying to be deceptive, but if everybody starts asking, where, where are these herbs from? How do you know? Have you visited the source? I think that would help make a difference. Yeah, it would. And I don't intend to throw a company like Celestial Seasons, Seasoning, Seasons, Seasonings under the bus. It's simply that in my research, I've found that when companies, even when they start small and with all the right intentions, if they get big enough and get bought out by multinational corporations, often the ethics of the company changes, the quality of the company changes, the story may stay the same, but it's no longer what the real backstory is. And so I think it's very important for consumers to try to do the research that you've done to look behind the scenes to find out, is this still the small little company that started out in this little town by the people who were hand harvesting all their products and formulating all these wonderful teas or, or remedies? Or is this now a company that is since been bought out by X, Y, and Z and is operating under the same kind of disguise, but not with any of the same principles. 
And yes, I totally agree. And I find that, um, so when I was a student of herbal medicine, herbalists would always recommend certain companies that were that kind of, and had the story of the founding of that company. And, and I talk about some of that in the business of botanicals of um, early days of traditional medicinals and herb farm. And the, those companies, and, and you know, there are others that were founded and had this vision of a particular vision. And over time, as things change, you can't just assume, even if they're not bought out, you can't just assume it's the same thing. You need to keep asking. And I love how you said that the story stays the same. I feel like it's really important that those companies know that we're listening to the new story too. And it can be a different story. It doesn't mean it's a worse story. You know, Sebastian Pohl, who's the owner of, the co-founder of Pucker Herbs, who we visited with, we traveled around India with, and Pucker Herbs is a big feature in the business of botanicals. And um, they sold to Unilever a few years ago. And Sebastian is, and you know, got criticized harshly, but he's quite articulate about if we want to make the difference in the world that is needed, we need to scale up. We need to scale up fast and we need to do it in a much bigger way. And, and working with Unilever allows them to do that. And, you know, it's not without his challenges and all of those things, but he's not hiding behind an old story is what I'm saying. He's, this is the new story. This is, this is the state of the world. This is how we're trying to meet it. Yeah, and it's, that transparency is so important so that it's it's very admirable that he is moving forward with that and letting them know, no, there's a new story, but we still have all the great foundations that we are built upon. And this is how we're ensuring, you know, he's he, he spells out, these are the ways we're making sure these values are enshrined. And I'm sure it's challenging and all of those things. He's not saying it's not. Um, but it's, they're trying to go in with their eyes open and doing everything to put a system in place, a structure in place. And it'll be something different, you know, which I find sad because I really like the way it was, but that is neither here nor there. It's. Um... Can you tell me a bit about your sustainable herbs program? Sure. So I started the sustainable herbs program while I was doing research for this book. I went to Eastern Europe to visit, as I said, these very wild projects. And as I was there, I thought, oh, it would be much more valuable for consumers to see short videos of wild collection or processing herbs to, to really understand, um, both because it's visual and also because it would be a lot quicker than it would take me to write this book. <laughs> and, and, so I, <laughs> and so I came back and I did a Kickstarter and raised the money Actually, it was, we raised $60,000 and it was mostly $35 donations, really strong outpouring from the herb community. Cause I think people, really, wow. people really want to know where, where are these herbs from and what can I do to make sure I'm getting a good product and supporting what I think I'm supporting. And so with that money, with my husband who's the filmmaker, we traveled around and documented uh, you know, went back to Eastern Europe and went to India and went to Germany and traveled around the US to do short videos with what I was saying, really educating consumers. This is what wild harvesting looks like. This is what processing is like. This, These are the steps so that we can all be 
understand more about what it takes, how complex it is, so that we're not naive in our expectations of what a company can accomplish. Um, so we did those videos, and then I created this website, multimedia website with videos and written content. And then I was looking for a home for it. So that was just an educational resource for free for the herb world mostly. And as I was looking for a long-term home for it, I started talking with Mark Blumenthal at American Botanical Council. And he and we decided that Sustainable Herbs Program would come under their auspices. And so that's where it is now. It's a program of the American Botanical Council, which has been great because it really allows, so as you know, like the herb industry is changing and there's a lot of companies that it's hard because of good manufacturing practices for in the US at least for, for companies to be able to grow beyond the farmer's market. So there's a lot of herb companies sort of on a grassroots level and there's not a lot of herb companies that are really bigger and able to survive on a national, international level. And that was a surprise to me. And so I realized that to really understand and make change in the industry, I had to understand that bigger scale. You know, the kinds of companies that are sourcing from ingredient suppliers and using contract manufacturers. And the partnership with American Botanical Council has really helped me enter that conversation. So who is this program for? So it's for, di there are different arms of it and, and sort of depending on like a different, it's most, it's just me doing the work. And so some areas will have different focus at different times. Um, my goal is that it has content that reaches consumers and the kind of herbalist practitioner world and the industry. And, you know, we have done, yeah. And it's so at different times, I'm focusing on different aspects of that. Lately, it's been focused more on the industry and trying to develop a collection of tools around best practices for responsible sourcing, which involves like, so we're doing a series of webinars with people who are working to improve the soils and bring regenerative farming practices into how herbs are cultivated or companies that are really looking at equity and living income and how to support rural communities and the economic viability of it. But then in a couple, in May, I'm gonna do a public awareness campaign around regenerative farming practices in the botanical industry. And that's really gonna be geared to um, a general audience and herbalists like, okay, how do I find if a, if a company is really caring for the soil and things like that. So I don't know if that answers. Yeah, so it's not so much an evergreen product, but it's something that's constantly evolving and you're bringing new material forth based on inspiration or other factors. Yeah. And another thing I'm trying to do in the industry is, you know, the challenges that companies face, biodiversity loss, climate change, and rural rural to urban migration is a huge issue in the industry. They're not people to do the work to, to collect the plants or to grow them. And those transcend any company. And so with a number of other people really trying to build ways to collaborate across companies. Um, so I'm exploring different ideas around that 
and how to build safe places and conversations. Um, is the ultimate goal of the Sustainable Herbs Program to actually make that network happen, to bring that collaboration together? Or is that just one facet of it? I think that's one facet of it. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a larger or a, a broader goal for the program? I feel like the botanical industry, you know, there's a lot of talk about green capitalism and using um, our money to change the world. I, I don't know if that's ultimately possible, but I believe if any industry should be leading the way, it should be the botanical industry because it's in the business of wellness. And so that means it has to be, you know, if we really think it can be wellness for the whole ecosystem. And so that's my goal is to be leading the way, not for me necessarily to do it, but for a whole bunch of us. To yeah. be, you know, I have kids, uh, you know, I, the world's not a great place right now. And so yeah. trying to figure out how to best do my part to bring, to have the conversations I think that might help more people take action. And is the sustainable herbs program more focused on the consumer to help inspire them to do that? Or is it working at the other end of the producers, the herbalist and the product manufacturers, et cetera? It's both because I think it requires both. And, you know, in conversations with people in the industry, they're always saying, which comes first? Do the industry, the companies need to take the lead or do consumers need to take the lead? And there's a lot of money invested in consumer studies. And everybody at these trade shows always talking about consumers sustainability values, et cetera, et cetera, as a motivating force for making these changes. You know, I feel like it should be a moral responsibility that we all take, but so companies are listening to consumers. And so I wanna provide that conversation among consumers with, so that it's what I was saying, you know, it's educated, but also companies there's a lot of people in companies who really want to, who really care and are trying to make a difference and just whatever I can do to help amplify that. I want to do that too, but also with practitioners, um, you know, to develop educational content that really deepens how they teach about plants. So say, instead of just teaching about nettles is good for skin, liver, et cetera, et cetera, to really bring more of what that person did with you in the tea, you know, these nettles were grown on a small organic farm in Vermont. And are they different from these nettles that were sourced from Poland by wild collectors? Um, is there a difference in how does putting herbs back in place so that that story is also part of how herbalists teach about them? I, mean, I also want to do that. <laughs> it all sounds like a wonderful passion project <laughs> and I applaud you for for following that path to bringing this stuff to fruition where and can people find out more about you and all of your books so I have a website com, and there's the books there and, and there's information there about ordering the book um, there's a link to my local bookstore, but um, also other places where you can find books. 
And another place to get information on the Sustainable Herbs Program is the Sustainable Herbs Program website, which is that sustainableherbsprogram.org. Well, fascinating. Thank you so much for following your passion and doing this work that is so important to, I think it's so important to be done so that it can help connect us more closely with nature and more closely with the products that we're deciding to purchase and and put into our bodies thank you so much it's thank you for your thoughtful questions it's been really enjoyable to talk with you my pleasure thanks for being on the podcast today thanks for listening to this episode of pacific rim college radio with ann armbrecht for more about ann and her books please visit annarmbrecht.com that's A-N-N-A-R-M-B-R-E-C-H-T dot com. For more information on her Sustainable Herbs program, visit sustainableherbsprogram.org. If you are interested in studying Western Herbal Medicine, the School of Western Herbal Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned programs, including world's only study options combining Western Herbal Medicine with acupuncture and holistic nutrition. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in herbal medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture and Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, explore the stories behind your favorite herb producers and insist on transparency where little is given.